Welcome to Cloud and Clear, the podcast by SADA for innovative business leaders and technology enthusiasts, where we explore how Google Cloud is transforming the industry and what that means to you. Now, here's your host, Miles Ward. Hi, everybody. I'm Miles Ward. I'm CTO here at SADA Systems, and this is Cloud and Clear, our podcast for unpacking what the heck is going on in public cloud and how it interfaces with how big businesses and small businesses alike are taking value from said magical thing. I am very excited about today's show. We have a very interesting and snarky person on today. His name is Corey Quinn. Corey, introduce yourself. Certainly. My name's Corey Quinn, as Miles just told you. Uh, I run a small consultancy where our entire focus is on fixing companies' horrifying AWS bills. That sort of led itself to a bunch of other things as we explored different opportunities. There's a snarky newsletter uh, last week in AWS that gathers Amazon's news and makes fun of it. An overly active Twitter feed at Pig on the Twitters and a couple of podcasts of my own that I will refrain from pushing here so as not to upset Miles further than I normally do. Ha! You will absolutely be given full permission to uh, push said podcast and Twitter handles at the very tail end, assuming that the answers that you give to the questions are nothing but hyperbolically positive and uh, deeply engendering of a systematic move of all customers from AWS to GCP. Yes, of course. <laughs> we all have agendas here. To be clear, I'm not an AWS partner. I'm not sure they know what the term partner means. And I'm not partnered with any vendor in the space whatsoever. My entire alignment is with my customers who generally pay a fixed fee and ask me to work for things on their behalf. And that's it. So when I crap on different cloud providers, it's because it's what I believe, not because someone else is paying me to do so. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. We we are in interesting positions because my business has taken exactly the opposite strategy. We are specifically and explicitly an all-in partner of Google. We that's the technology stack that we do implementations on. I I wonder as you're as you're working with customers, like wh- what do they see as the pros and cons of those two structures? Because I get a lot of positive feedback from our customers about having the clearest alignment with the sales rep. There's no confusion there and being able to get access to the earliest bits and all sorts of good stuff on that side. Oh yeah. To be fair, uh, one thing that, to be fair, uh, one of the things that I found was that when I started doing a project in the security space briefly uh, as a favor for someone, every talking point that I had suddenly evaporated. Like, oh, we're not partnered with anyone in this space. And the response is, oh, so you're stupid and figure you can do it all on your own. It aligns very well with the particular angle of we fix the bill. It doesn't align nearly as well with almost anything else. Got it. Got it. And I mean, as someone who has fought with the bill, uh, you know, an immeasurable number of times, uh, you know, my role at Google Cloud when I started, there wasn't even really, you know, efficient bills at all. Uh, And customers had a lot of struggle figuring out uh, what this stuff would cost. So it was uh, Oleg and I that built the pricing calculator for Google Cloud. So I, I have seen a very large number of bills too. Where, where in that, in the in the core of where you're focused today with customers, where where is it hardest? Where where is it most difficult for them to understand what comes out of these providers? Uh, the the problem, in fact, is larger than that because the the stated pain point that generally brings people talking to me is the bill is too expensive. That's almost never the case. Although recently with the whole uh, 
pandemic spreading around where people mm. are starting to actually suddenly cut money because free money isn't really a thing anymore. That is, that's changing. But historically, the pain point has been, how do we understand the bill? How do we predict it over the next 18 to 36 months? We're mm. used to building out data centers, that going along and spending an enormous pile of money on it. But once it's done, we pretty much know what it's going to cost us for the next three years to run. That is sort of the exact opposite in a time of cloud. The most painful part that I see is certain finance groups struggling to adapt to the reality that what it is that they're doing is not going to be a straight answer in terms of dollars and cents, but rather as a function of what user counts they have, what that user activity looks like. Mm. And it's not going to be tied directly to come one way or another, we're spending X dollars, but rather this is going to be a function of the overall health of our business as defined by these metrics that we've established. It's yeah. a bit of a heavy lift. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time with finance teams and, you know, wanting a utility to behave like a capital good is a is a deep, deep longing in our friends. It is, finance. but eventually we stop building our own power plants too. So yeah. at some point you have to draw a bit of a line. Yeah, I think there's a lot of spots where companies go, right, but there are lots and lots of shops where I can buy all you can eat drinks. And I, I, I want all I can eat drinks. And you go, but look, you don't eat drinks, you drink them. And he goes, ah, it doesn't matter. I just want all I can eat. So I think there's a lot of spots where we spent time uh, you know, together with product management on the Google side, thinking through all the different ways we could give people the pickle, which is the sort of the business term for handing them whatever little thing it is that they want associated with uh, with the larger thing that they're trying to buy, um, not the other possible interpretations of said possible line. Of course, of course. Yeah. So, so thinking through, um, you know, there's one side of the business that is, you know, that is really unpacking people's bill and understanding what's happening in the finances of public cloud. But the other part of that that I'm super impressed by is the you know, drumming up focus and getting people to pay attention to that part of the problem. I, I think a whole bunch of the sales folks that I've worked with spend, you know, enormous numbers of cycles trying to get people to not pay attention to the bill. What uh, what have you done in, in communicating with customers and in sort of drawing focus to this area to, uh, you know, to help people understand the kind of full scope of what's needed out of cloud? Someone at the company invariably has to care or they're not my customer in the first place. No one is going to pay me to fix a bill that is not perceived as being painful. So the first part is there's someone there who cares. Ideally, if they become a customer, that someone is in a position to have access to strategy. Uh, good faith efforts by engineers who this bill is insultingly large, in many cases, fail to capture a larger context of why companies do the things that they do. Mm. So the painful part of getting that awareness is making sure that it becomes cross-functional. People in finance care from one perspective, people in engineering leadership care from another. It's getting them to realize that there are things that they can do to save money. That's usually not the hard part. What sometimes becomes more of a challenge is convincing them when it's okay to stop. I mean, you can spend an enormous pile of money on engineering salaries for them to sit around and knock 300 bucks a month off of various aspects of the bill, but that's usually not the right answer. Sometimes it is, but most mm -hmm. of the time it's not. One of the things that I've noticed, um, right, like I remember a case study that I worked on with 
two incredibly sharp engineers that were working on a, a system for the second, the sequel to Band-Aid, right? They're going to run a, a concert to raise money for Ebola. And they had read white papers from the AWS side about the best practices. I contributed to some of those white papers. So they were like actively following my instruction manual. And they're like, look, it's going to be super cheap to run this website. It's only going to be 48 grand. And so I do a little investigation of their stuff and it's an entirely static site. It should be sitting in S3 and it ended up costing $9 and 17 cents. So they didn't have a painful bill, but they sure should have felt pain, <laughs> right? I felt the pain on the other side of that phone call. I was like, ouch, it hurts so bad. So, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts about like helping more companies discover that they ought to be experiencing pain at this time. That's a good question. It's, I've generally tried to steer away from business models in their entirety that require me to first educate the customer before I can <laughs> tell them something. I find that people fall into that trap all the time. It's, well, this, th our product is amazing because it teaches the customer X, Y, and Z. It's great. How do I distill this down to a painful problem that a customer has that you make go away? And if the answer presupposes, A, that they have 45 minutes to listen to you, or B, that they have 10 years of experience working in the exact thing that you now solve, then you need to refine your messaging a little bit. Or it's possible you may have product market fit issues. It's, I don't have to explain to customers why a giant unpredictable bill is a problem. They already know why it's a problem. In fact, very often I'll learn from them why it's a problem. My, one of my first questions when people show up is, oh, so your bill's high. Great. Why do you care is, is really the direct answer. I know it sounds like a naive question. But in almost every case, it's, well, I care because my boss cares. Great. Why does your boss care? And you play this game of corporate telephone trying to figure mm -hmm. out how things got to where they are. And that becomes a very interesting exercise in, I guess, marriage counseling between finance and engineering. It sure. also becomes, in some cases, introducing employees to one another who have worked together for five years but never spoken outside of lunch. Yeah. No, that the connectivity inside businesses is so broken. Like, and the problem is you can't, uh, you know, and I find this in my, with my own employee relationships, right? Like employees are like, Hey, I want to do a one-on-one -on -one with you. you. You're the new shiny CTO. You seem smart. And I say, Oh, you, you have a terrible misimpression of me. I'm not all that sharp, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm funny online. So exactly. I'm, I'm not, I'm not speaking authoritatively. I'm speaking confidently. There's a difference. <laughs> There's a huge difference. So, uh, but then they say, Hey, but no, anyway, I still want that one-on-one. -on -one. And I say, well, let's like, let's work on something together. It will be more fun. Like us just sort of talking in the abstract is going to feel really obnoxious. So I find all the time, like if I'm in trying to fix a communications problem inside of customers, like you're identifying, you've got to go do something productive with them and show how you work with your peers and support organization and structure. See how much I'm talking to them. Like you can try to do that same thing on your side. It might work magic. The danger with a lot of that too, is it gets close to corporate transformation. And that becomes a very challenging thing to drive from the outside, but that doesn't yeah. mean you can't charge a lot of money for it. That's never really been my approach. My, my initial cost optimization projects are I show up and I'm averaging a little over 20% of their gross bill per year in savings. And that tends to go over super well, but the next 20% is going to be a heck of a lot harder because mm -hmm. you've got to, and this, okay, by the way, none of this is particular to any one cloud provider. This is all across the board. The reason mm -hmm. I focus on AWS is because that's where I have the experience. And when I started talking to people in my network, that's where the expensive problems lived. Mm -hmm. Most of what I do would port super well to GCP or Azure, or certainly not uh, Oracle, because I can't tell that they have customers to speak of. So Bing. yeah, and for some customers, some clouds, it's great. You want a discount, you call your account rep and you scream at them and they give you a discount. End of story. Hard to optimize that as a consultant consulting engagement. 
mm. at least more than once. The, the fun part, though, is that as people go through this process, they're learning about what's going on in their accounts. There's often a perception as well that, oh, we should have focused on cost from the very beginning. That's wrong, too. Mm. It's, it's very hard to drive a cultural transformation internally, let alone externally. And it has to, in some ways, come from the top. But I've never been a believer in the idea that you have to start on day one thinking about cost. No one has ever built something successfully while trying to do it for the least possible amount of money. Build the thing, see if it's viable, and then optimize as you go. It becomes a sort of a sawtooth graph as far as a cyclical nature becomes. You don't want engineers to have to ask permission from someone to spin up new instance clusters. As soon as that happens for testing, they're never going to turn it off ever again because look at how much work it took to get it the first time. You, mm. When you get in people's way, you start impacting their ability to iterate and their ability to innovate. Yeah. I mean, I see over and over and over and over and over again, the sunk cost fallacy, you know, goes up by an order of magnitude when it's sunk engineering focus. Like once you've spent a month noodling some problem, by gum, we are going to ship this thing because I've already spent a month noodling on the problem. And that's, I'm never going to get that month back and uh, the opportunity. Oh, yeah. there. And people massive. focus on the wrong parts all the time. Uh, back when Lyft uh, was going public and they announced that they had committed to um, $100 million a year in AWS spend, all of Hacker News immediately sounded off about how, mm -hmm. oh, this was a terrible thing. They could have built a data center for so much less money. Obviously, they're all idiots. Well, spoiler, they're not. They know exactly what they're doing. And if you zoom out a little bit, at the time, they were losing something like $900 million a year as their business starts uh, effectively going public to raise money, continue their ongoing transform transformative story. And $100 million here or there, more or less, doesn't change the trajectory of their business. So the, the question was not, could they have gotten what they were doing for cheaper? But rather, what were they getting in return for that? And if you read a lot of the white papers they've done in collaboration with AWS, these aren't just rent, these aren't just a crap ton of EC2 instances and that's it. They are clearly using higher level services. They're clearly leveraging it in a bunch of interesting and exciting ways. And that's an entire data center facility and staff that they don't have to support themselves. At mm -hmm. their scale, many of those. So the easy, is it an easy answer for them to uh, wind up uh, just deciding to go with cloud all the time? No. Because I'd want to see the analysis too. If I'm in that position and wow, we're spending eight or nine figures a year or 10 figures a year in some very few rare shops on mm -hmm. a particular provider, do we have another alternative? You of course should ask that question and run the models, but mm -hmm. understand that that doesn't mean that you've been wrong to get to that point. Yeah. I, I think especially with businesses that are in that context where they're at outrageous growth, where they have a whole bunch of externalized risk, there's all manner of you know outside variables that can hugely manipulate their outcomes. Taking on multi-year committed risks is, is crazy in that already intensely risky context. And I think the, the number one thing that cloud gave to all these companies is this reduction of time commitment risk. Right. My, my worry and what I see happening is that companies are exchanging contractual time commitment risk, financial risk associated with buying a bunch of stuff and then having to figure out how to depreciate it or get out of it when it when it wears out for for lock in risk. Right. I'll take a little more platform coherence in exchange for a little more platform lock at the expense of or to earn the better financial independence, mm -hmm. quote unquote. 
Sure. This gets into the whole question of, is multi-cloud a viable strategy? My sure. argument is generally not. I mean, there are always going to be exceptions and there's always going to be edge cases and you're going to see it everywhere because it's going to be a thing regardless. A giant company, it does an acquisition that runs on a different cloud. Boom, you have a multi-cloud story. The mm -hmm. argument that I've been against has been, oh, you should build this workload so it could seamlessly run anywhere and don't tie it to any particular provider. That's generally a waste of time and it doesn't get you anywhere. Because first, every time you see someone doing it, oh, so you can't, so you are deploying this to multiple clouds? No, just one. But we wrote it in Terraform, and instead of using load balancers that they provide, we're building our own, et cetera, et cetera. But if they try and deploy it to another provider, first, it breaks, and they have to spend six months iterating again to get it to a point where it could actually work. And B, to get there, there's still not taking, they're, they're, that's time they're spending reinventing wheels that the provider already gives you. Now, it seems to me that if I have to make a giant cloud migration in five years, I would sooner be all in on one provider with at least having in the back of my mind a path towards strategic exodus versus trying to build that agnosticism in from day one. Because you're trading feature velocity for an optionality that you very well may not survive long enough to need. Yeah, I think there's there's a, a one, I think the market is changing. And, and I think Google and Red Hat and everybody's mom are investing in technologies to try and change the technical reality there. I don't think it has changed. It's not past tense, but the, the context is moving. Anthos is making a big impact there. We're watching VMware do a bunch of stuff in the same area. There's, oh, there's yes. a lot, I think, of interesting innovation happening. And both of those are big e-enterprise corporate IT cost center side of the world, too. They're yes. what they're not, and I think this is the divergence that people are missing, is they're not the, we're a SaaS company, and the thing that we're running in the cloud is the thing that we sell to various customers. On the corporate IT side of the world, all of the modeling around this is radically different. It is perceived, rightly or wrongly, as a pure cost center. It's the thing you have to do to let people do their jobs, but mm. it's not going to be a strategic priority the way that adjusting your cost of goods or cost of services sold would be. Yeah, the... The SaaS thing, I think, is is a place where we think there's particular drive to be multi-cloud and hybrid because you have all these customers who demand it will be right here or you can shove off. Yes. Uh, it's not the it, fact it that you're worried about Amazon looking through your stuff. It's the fact no. that, great, it's, well, your, will your customers tolerate things living on top of Amazon? Because And that's the chilling effect that I think people are seeing across the board. And mm. it's, well, what if Amazon becomes our competitor? That's an easy question to answer. It's, what do you mean if? The product <laughs> yeah. strategy is yes, of course they're going to become your competitor. I mean, That's if right. you want to go down to tropes, there's one of those, great. Amazon will compete with you. Google will turn off the thing that you love. And Microsoft is still going to trip over itself. But for some reason, your execs love them and we don't understand why. <laughs> there, there's a lot of things that are, that, like, that are going to continue to bear out. Some of those are lazy. All of those are lazy. But I think that there's definitely room for more than a one-player ecosystem. In fact, one of my biggest fears that keeps me up at night is that this becomes an Amazonian monoculture. I don't think anyone wants that, even Amazon, if you ask them honestly. Yeah. No, I mean, it's Dandy Jassy's line that the number one impediment to their growth was the lack of a viable competitor. I took that as a, a personal challenge. So um, I, I do think that- You know, nobody... it's going to say that now. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> now, that, now that Viable popped up, it's kind of like, oh. but the the core thing is there are layers of the infrastructure, right? I don't think, you know, the joke is that you know, nobody really pays attention to the hard drive provider that they're buying from anymore. And that's not quite true, but certainly no one is paying attention to the, you know, aluminum smelter that they got the outer housings from. And at some point, these things do become commoditized. 
And, and maybe not all of those things, right? Like Google has whatever, 290 something products across this thing that it calls cloud. Several of them certainly are so apples to apples to have simple little TCO comparisons between the two of them. Some of them are so radically different that they're, they're hard to even compare. So it's, I, I, the hope I think for everybody involved is to have an increasing number of places where there is increasing commoditization because that is better for consumers, right? If we can just get things to go that direction, everybody's costs go down, the interoperability increases, nobody cares which gas station they go to, they all sell gas. Exactly. It winds up being a, a much less um, differentiated marketplace at some point. And to some argue, some would argue that's the reason that they're making some of these changes. It, I don't think that any cloud provider in the world wants to be in a uh, in a competition where it's cool. Object storage, one of the simplest services you can get out there with a caveat or two next to it, where it's you're strictly competing on a, once you get the baseline of, does it do all the things I need the storage system to do, then you're just competing on cost per gigabyte. I don't think anyone wants to wind up in that space. It's why we haven't really seen a serious price war among object stores. Yeah, there was this stabbing. This very brief moment where everything yeah. got at once. And then it sort of held still in a uh, in a sort of a uh, enforced uh, pricing we're at right now, which I think no one wants to, no one wants to drive themselves out of business. Yeah, there was, there was like, yeah, there was this moment where, you know, compute and storage and a couple other things, networking, we did a little bit with that, not nearly enough of it. Um, and then, and then it kind of, everybody came up for air and was like, oh, okay, let's just sort of see if we can grow the overall pie rather than sort of fight for slices of the pie. And, and I think that there's, uh, there's huge utility to customers in that the gross numbers that I've heard, you know, this is, this is out of a couple of different research reports is that all overall, all of infrastructure is 3.57 trillion, 6% of that is now public cloud, which represents 10% of the actual work. That public yeah. cloud on average gross writ large is 40% cheaper than the other ways of doing it or 40% more effective or however you want to do the math. Yeah. Like in that context, how, how effective can SNARK be as a go-to-market model? Right. How's that for well, that's, you? That's a good question. I, I don't think that you're ever going to see snark as a go-to-market model for a cloud provider themselves. It turns out that people that. are generally opposed to the idea that oh, we're going to give our operations over to a bunch of clowns. Now, in many cases, they have given their operations over to a bunch of clowns. Yes. They call employees who are not particularly good at their jobs. But by outsourcing it to Clown Computing Incorporated, they have a worse problem that they suddenly have to deal with. So I, I think that there needs to be a certain level of seriousness and a tone that you're never going to be able to strike as a provider. Now, for those of us who are orbiting in the ecosystem as very small specs against the gargantuan planet-sized uh, public cloud providers, well, you have to differentiate somehow. And snark and sarcasm were always my first languages at home growing up. There you go. There you go. You know, you, know, you have to play to your superpowers, right? I mean, that's, oh, that's yeah. the nature of the beast. I'm not going to be able to compete against a lot of the other consultancies out there on uh, airport ad spend. So I've got to wind up doing something different. And you don't generally see Accenture, for example, making fun of companies, for, uh, or at least not being intentionally funny in some of their advertisements. <laughs> Whether I, I, are, I absolutely suspect they'll do it by total accident through complete buffoonery, but that's... On sad. some level, I try not to celebrate other companies' own goals, but, you know, I also don't particularly see them as competition in any meaningful way. Again, yeah. I'm a very small niche as far as what the thing that I target is, and the typical customer that I deal with, the size of the deals that I'm engaged with, are not really going to lend themselves over to a competitive bid process because people are going to make $40 million a year from solving this problem. I, it's the same reason that we're seeing a lot of the uh, cost management platform companies starting to flounder. 
the yeah. total addressable market is fundamentally not big enough. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. It's it it reminds me of the you know it may be apocryphal conversation between uh, between Steve Jobs and and Drew from uh, from Dropbox, where Steve accuses his product of being a feature. Right. I I think eventually eventually everybody's going to need some kind of optimization systems running automatically. I helped with the Kuma project inside AWS that built the recommendation engine that says, hey, you should turn that EBS volume off. You aren't using it and things like that. Um, those That's the big competition for the automated side of the world is that the providers themselves will self, self-consume self their own exactly. juicy margin written pieces. But the oh, yeah. advice side is unlimited, right? People really need help. The so, problem too is that where do you get your advice from if you think right. about it? The, well, okay, we know we're optimized because the cloud provider themselves has come in and done an analysis and they tell us we're writing the appropriately sized check to them. Right. That's not going to pass muster in most places. So, all right, where else do you go? Uh, a large consultancy that winds up targeting, I don't know, um, they'll do a cost assessment for free, but magically all of their solutions involve billable work for the next 18 months and an army yeah. of 500 consultants who charge by the hour. It's yeah. at some point, the incentives and the opportunity for incentive misalignment is huge. I always question the idea of we're going to charge you a percentage of your spend. Okay. So if I'm paying you a percentage of my bill, can I really trust you're going to give me the things I could be doing most effectively to drop what I'm spending overall? Because it seems like this works against your own interest. What's the deal here? It, yeah. it just doesn't I mean, like work the, the same way. The only, the only variable model that makes any sense to me is a fraction of the savings achieved. But then you're disincentivized as the provider to only hunt down the biggest, most efficient, slowest moving, weirdest companies and only do the first project with them. The second it's project, worse than that because okay. I've tried that. I've played on that, that path as well. All right. So a company comes in, we're going to charge them a percentage of savings that we identify, not implement, because you don't ever want to be tied to their implementation yeah. procedures and we are advisory only. Great. So now they're going to wind up doing a bunch of things first or trying to rule things out. We know this is, we know that that's there. So you can't talk about that at all. Or they're going to quick buy a bunch of savings plans or reserved instances or commit to capacity. Great. Mm. But it turns out they're committed to the wrong thing. And mm. then it's one of those, you have to unwind the transaction and get it done right. And then you're, you're arguing the entire time over what you found versus what you didn't. It winds up to a misalignment between what you want and what your customer wants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it is one of the reasons that I left being first party at Google and came to a third party is exactly that disconnect between the advice and the end implementation. If I'm trying to give guidance and input to customers about what they ought to go build, I, I felt disingenuous, not at least occasionally going off and building it. So we spend a bunch of cycles at SADA doing that implementation work. And I think it's informing, you know, we're just getting now to a place after eight months of me working here where I have a bunch of bunch of feedback to my solutions architects buddies on the Google side, like, hey, like there's some pragmatic shit you should put in there to make this stuff a little more palatable. Yeah. But, but I, you know, I wonder like, so, you know, in that vein, um, you know, from a war story standpoint, right? Like what maybe easy ones that, that have been, you know, huge windfalls in terms of discoveries at customers or places where there was a, you know, some some big chunk of change you were able to help people with. Sure. The, the problem is, though, is are those really wins, if you think about mm. it? Because you're coming to a customer saying you found a single line item, in this case, managed NAT gateway data processing. That was a full third of their annual bill. Oh. It's no one feels good about that. Like, wow, we're like, sure, they were glad that we found it and they fixed the problem. But 
that also tends to resonate as far as a, ooh, we're, was that just something we should have known going into it? I would argue that entire pricing model for that product is abusive and it shouldn't be anywhere near what it is. And the mm. account manager should have tagged that a long time ago, but that's beside the point. If we're talking raw dollar savings, yeah, we've uh, wound up saving, I think our high watermark so far is a bit over $7 million in savings Ooh. per month. So it wound up being a, a fun project. It's mm-hmm. be, at this point, our customers are spending over a billion dollars a year on on the uh, on cloud in general, and most of that on AWS specifically. And it's finding an interesting story as far when we see what customers are doing, how they're spending it, where they're spending it. EC2 is a clear away winner in almost every environment mm-hmm. we see. Uh, add four more services, and you're at 80, 85% of spend. Everything oh, yeah. else is sort of a long tail. So, sorry, no one has an expensive Lambda bill, full stop. Yep. Yep, very true. No, so we, companies we, aimed at opt- cost optimizing serverless, you have to identify the expensive problem first. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of places where I think customers are, you know, they're they're trying to think exponential. They they recognize that things can get big, right? But they they don't have any kind of bounding box or model for what their environments look like. And, you know, inconveniently, we keep running into these world situations that screw with people's models and change the bounding boxes. So I think there's a lot of spots where, you know, expert advice from smart folks like you can really help them think through the problem. Because another piece that I see all the time is, uh, is customers really only interact with this problem maybe once or twice per internal regime as the businesses evolve and change and grow and molt, where we get to look at the same kind of problem over and over and over and over again. So we know what to look for. We're not confused by these problem faces. There are so many problems that we see in this space that just happen again and again and again. One of the dangerous things that I did back when I was first starting this three and a half years ago, I would talk to some of the best people I know in this space. And I fell into the trap of assuming that a lot of them were going to be representative. Folks who spent three days a month staring into the depths of the bill. And I've got to be at least as good as those folks are at knowing this stuff off the top of my head. Now, today I am, but back then that was not the common case. And those people even now would never be my customers. It's about folks who haven't bought our eyes or the GCP or Azure equivalents in the last 18 months. It's folks who are who have not done a deep analysis to understand their bill. It's mm-hmm. folks who are concerned and have the painful problem, but don't want to devote a bunch of engineering time to chasing this stuff down. Now, how do folks find out about me? Well, that's where the snark comes into play. It's marketing or snarketing, if you prefer the term. <laughs> that's awesome. So, so two two closing questions for us. Sure. One 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 bit that's really critical. I you know my company is is has been at this for a long time, but we are you know learning new tricks and taking on new products and helping new kinds of customers every day. You know you you grok roughly what it is that we're doing and and oh, yeah. I appreciate the positive feedback that you've had so far what any any advice for the way that we should help customers how we should add value to them places we can improve their experience with public cloud your answers are going to come from your customers themselves uh it mm. comes down to the way I figured this out is when I first started this I was convinced I was going to be building a software platform pretty quickly because this was a problem I was going to solve with code that so I asked a bunch of dumb questions I already knew to my customers. And it turned out I didn't know the answers. And Mm -hmm. oh, the pain that they are, the way they're talking about the pain is not what I thought they were going to say. So it turned out that the problem I was seeing was what we talked about earlier, where you're, this is not a too much money, it's a predictability problem. And there's no API for business insight. So Mm -hmm. now we have to go and do this in an advisory consulting path. And here we are today. 
I mean, you've obviously succeeded and scaled out far larger than we have. I mean, I saw a press release that you folks are responsible now or committing to, what is it, half a billion dollars a year in GCP spend? I like all numbers you can pronounce with a pinky in your corner of your mouth. Exactly. Now, the counter argument there is that sets you up for some things, but cuts against some other stories. For example, if you go in now, we're going to help all these GCP customers cut their bills. Doesn't that seem like it's a bit disingenuous compared to the thing you just said in the press release? This is where alignment around bill gets painful. I would also yeah. suggest today that the majority of GCP folks I've spoken to, uh, customers on that side, they aren't naming bills as their primary pain point at all. They're talking about capability story. They're talking about concern of uh, the, the G, for example, not to, be, not to be rude here, the deprecation story. Is Google sure. in this for the long haul? So yeah. if the answer becomes, well, the largest GCP partner has committed contractually to support what we're doing and cover the migration in some meaningful way, should we ever have to do that because of a deprecation story, or and the lawyers can figure out the exact terms, suddenly they have risk that you're able to provide in a way that very few other people would be able to other than GCP themselves. Mm -hmm. That might yeah. be an angle. It comes down yeah. to a, uh, and this is incidentally a common problem I see with, uh, shall we say, fanboys of every cloud provider. Sure. Whenever I wind up making jokes about GCP turning things off, there's a bunch of people like, I don't know, you, who show up in my Twitter mentions saying, that's not funny, and going down an entire <laughs> list of why I'm a complete idiot. Sure, great. You and I can have this conversation and you can explain point by point why I'm wrong. But if I'm saying something, there are lots of other people who are thinking, or there are a lot of other people who are thinking that exact same thing, and sure. you're not in those conversations. So the perception that winds up being articulated is the, is, it's easy to attack the messenger, but if I'm saying it out loud, a lot of other people are generally thinking about it because I'm not as unique and creative as one might think. So same story with everything else. In AWS, it's you might I might sit here and say it's ridiculous to worry over much about Amazon competing with you, except for the fact that a number of very large customers are worried about exactly that. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to tell them that they're wrong in any stretch. The Microsoft story is right now people are scared to death by their announcement that their that their cloud is full more or less, yes. as we're seeing sudden capacity yes. influxes. That's well, and, and, they, and they state they state the number at 775%, right? Which is, sure. like, that sounds like a real big number. Oh, it uh, does. I, I, I sat with the folks at Pokemon Go as they did 53 times the workload. There are no hundreds of percents in 53 times the workload that and they expected. <laughs> and so it's like uh, it's like the number of nines in the GOP system that competed with us in 2012. It had 11% uptime, even though, like that that. Has, even though that has one nine, it still has no damn nines. So the that kind of, uh, you know, the, the scenarios where these systems end up broken like that, uh, they they belie the overall structure. It's one of the places that blew me away as I came in as a potential employee. It was like, oh, oh, Google's really big, like really mm -hmm. actually super big. Okay, that's different. Now there's they have I and I agree with you as as a product manager who turned a product off. I, I am I'm absolutely deeply aware. Not of a real Googler thing. until you turn something off. That's right. I, I don't I don't think I was even remotely official until I had done that. And I and I know plenty of friends of mine who are just aching for the moment that they get to yank the plug. Uh, but it's it, it is a spot where I think as a business, you know, like we were had an open conversation about it internally. Like, would we take out insurance policies for customers against individual products that we represent to them? Yeah. Like that is a gutsy cool thought. We have a bunch of access. We know who the product managers are. We can kind of take our own bets as to whether or not we think yeah. they're in it for the long haul or what the deal is. 
And, you know, I don't know. This is the the power of reputation. I mean, AWS and GCP have the same contractual terms around deprecation, notice, et cetera. That is both their public terms as well as private terms I've seen for larger customers on both Mm -hmm. sides. There is no meaningful difference between them. But people don't ask that question about Amazon on the corporate side because Amazon takes it almost sarcastically far where it's, we will never deprecate anything. And I'm looking at some of the crappy uh, SOAP APIs that you could still do some S3 things with. And it's everything about this is awful, but I could still build a company on top of it. Yeah, SIG V1 on SimpleDB, right? You're like, I'm passing what kind of plain text? What? Back and forth Mm -hmm. to SimpleDB? Mm -hmm. Like, so... (laughs) So, so yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, if we're going to have a next one of these podcasts, you know, if, if we're lucky enough and, and you don't think this comes out crappy and, and, and generally nothing gets imploded by the lawyers or anything, I think it would be a spectacular idea for us to brainstorm our way through the cloud insurance division of SADA systems and, you know, what its product offering would look like and how we would figure out that model to go to market. I think it would be a hilarious thing to build up. Oh, there absolutely would be. It's a, there's a lot of neat ways to approach the problems. It's, but again, a lot of this gets into my, I guess, old rules of snark that I don't get to talk about very often. If you have a minute, I'll take you through. Oh yeah. Because people wonder, all right, I say a lot of really bitingly sarcastic things and I tend to almost always quote unquote, get it right in that I don't wind up having to apologize profusely. I don't wind up making people feel bad. The rule is one, only ever punch up. It's not funny if you're punching down. The reason yeah. I own Twitter for pets.com is because making fun of an actual real small startup is a kind of jerk thing to do. And you're, as you crap on people's hard work, the exceptions to, if you, uh, my general boundary is if you're a multinational publicly traded company, cool, you've won. I can make fun of you. <laughs> yes. If you're smaller than that, it's generally uh, not on the table unless you've done something horrifying and egregious. Mm. It also comes down to the, my first and foremost target of my snark is usually myself, because if you can't laugh at yourself, you're a blowhard. I would argue some of our political leaders have the exact problem of no ability to set the laugh at their own foibles. And yeah. that leads to some horrifying behavior. If I ever yeah. stop being able to make fun of me as the world's worst systems architect, as I replace everyone's database with DNS, then great. <laughs> that It's fun to be able to play these games and see what happens. Every once in a while, I get to really go off on something, but usually it's it's well-intentioned. And strangely, when I complain sincerely about a problem, I don't get much feedback. When I crap all over it in a snarky way, suddenly the product owner is uh, showing up in my email. Hey, how can we help make this better? So really, a lot of these companies are annoyed by what I'm saying. They have no one to blame but themselves. They have given me positive reinforcement for my negative behaviors. What I have seen watching teams of product managers scramble like like scattered ants as a result of somebody messing with the anthill uh, in, in reaction to some of these things is is nothing short of amazing. Because trust us, we're trying to get them to scatter like ants too, <laughs> right? Very often you've got teams, I'm sure this is happening in, uh, there used to be a very, very magical list called the AWS Solutions Architect mailing list, internal to the SA team all, through which all context and experience of customer engagements occurred. It was like the, you couldn't help but be replying to a thousand people every time you sent anything out. And it was just sort of this constant. I have it on good war. authority that's been replaced with the chime room these days. Oh, 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 so, so you're saying the channel has been throttled to death. Very good. So uh, the, the email version of that though, created this, uh, created this community where people um, 
really, really, really reacted to feedback from third parties and tried to figure out how to run that to ground. But generally, they were trying to get change made to the product or forward movement on policy or advances in the, in the delivery to customers. Uh, and so it was always nice when you'd been making an argument for you know six months sequentially and to have some voice on the outside say the exact thing that you've been saying the whole time. So you're like, see, I'm not just making this stuff up. So thank you exactly. for backing people up. I appreciate that. And, and that's part of the trick too, is sometimes I admit I do get it wrong. And some of my criticism doesn't age super well. And other times it, and this is the problem I've run into increasingly, where the reason I make fun of Amazon service names so frequently is that <laughs> when you release something new that people have spent a year and a half basically working themselves to death to ship. And the first thing I do is make fun of it. That doesn't feel super great. Whereas no one spent 18 months naming systems manager, session manager. And if they did, well, maybe they deserve to feel bad for a day or two. It's <laughs> This it is comes, very true. Yeah. It's the, how can I make fun of something that isn't just crapping all over a team of people's extraordinarily hard work? And at yeah. scale, nothing is easy. And I'm fully aware of that. But the snark and the sarcasm drives engagement from folks who otherwise wouldn't even notice some of these releases are happening. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, do no, my I, I think there's, uh, you know, they say that, you know, bad news is still news and news is good news. Um, and so I think, I think you're absolutely right in being able to shine a spotlight on, especially on some of these smaller products that are, that are just starving for oxygen and, uh, trying to, trying to get people to see the advantage that they can provide. So I, I know that uh, you are probably starving for oxygen. We've been asking questions at you and, and bouncing back and forth. Any any last bits that you want to say to our audience? Where can they find you? How do they hunt you down? How do they make sure oh, that they yes. build up? Uh, the easiest way to find me is to release something on a, as an AWS service team and give it a <laughs> stupid name. I will find yeah. you. Uh, but the last week in AWS.com is probably the entry point to the podcasts, to the newsletter, to the blog post where I occasionally take a slightly more serious tone. Uh, and that really is probably the easiest place to find me. Quinny Pig on Twitter, but you probably have already heard of that one if you know what the heck a Twitter is and you care about this stuff at all. So I am available wherever people wind up trying to find me. Worst case, try saying my name three times in the mirror and boom, problem solved. I, I thought if you say your name in the mirror three times that you just, you pay 10 cents less for Route 53. I, mean, I, I thought it was just like an automatic discount. That is, well, that's for cars consulting engagement to uh, get ah, to the very bottom. Ah, you still have to sign the contract. So oh, you know the course, discount exactly. comes for you. Got it. Got it. Well, awesome. Corey, I appreciate it. Thank you very much for taking the time. This was great. I'm looking forward to the next one. Thank you. Likewise. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cloud and Clear. Check the show notes for links to this week's topics. And don't forget to connect with us on Twitter at Cloud and Clear and our website, sada.com. Be sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast app.